Another edition of No Challenges Remaining, episode 48. I am Ben Rothenberg, and joining me, as always, is my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How's your summer going? Summer's been all right. I mean, summer's been good. Summer's been a lot of road. Uh-huh. A lot of road time, as you have also had. Yes. So I don't know. How's been your like post-Wimbledon hangover? How's it going? It's going well. It's very hot here in D.C., as it always Ew. is in July. Um, it's like in the mid-upper 90s a lot. But it's just funny because like on the last day of Wimbledon, all the Brits were talking about how boiling it was for the final. And it was like 83 degrees. Dude, it was hot. I don't. I, you and I have had this discussion. Ben thinks that it was like totally over exaggerated how hot it was. I looked at the numbers. I ran the data on internets and found out that it was like actually like in the 80s. It would oh, if granted, the internet said so. Granted, it was much hotter than it had been any other day. And it was humid. It was humid, sure. I think that also just like we come from different weather stock, you and I. Because you're from Northern California, which has like a 15 degree range that stays in all year. Fair, fair. And I'm from D.C., which has like blizzards and like disgusting heat waves. So. Yeah, no, but I mean, it was hot. And I think that, well, I mean, I, I think it was legit hot. And there are, you know, there were on court thermometers that were registering above 100 yeah i think they were probably reading those upside down though i'm not sure if i buy that yeah so you'll believe the internet but you won't believe the on-court thermometer uh-huh okay that makes sense so on this show we have some stuff to talk about there was the big news surprise news that maria sharapova has a new coach in jimmy connors which is a little crazy and out of left field we're also going to talk briefly about other stuff, including the comeback of Elisa Klebanova, which will be gearing up and starting up in earnest later this month or in August, I guess, as Canada and Cincinnati and the U.S. Open roll around. And then we're going to have a guest for the first time in a while with Renee Stubbs. So that should be cool, right? Awesome. I'm very much looking forward to talking to Stubbsy. Awesome, awesome. So let's start with Maria. Uh, Maria Sharapova announced late last week that she was, at first she announced that she was getting rid of her coach, Thomas Hogstead, because he didn't want to travel as much. And then she brought on Jimmy Connors a few days later, announced him as her new coach. Courtney, what were your initial reactions, I guess, first to the news that she was making a change at all, and then that she went with Connors? Yeah, I think it was somewhat surprising that she decided to make a change in the first place. I, I think that she and Hogstead seemed to work well together. You know, I think they teamed up when she was 18th in the world, obviously, and and together they they her game really did improve. Yeah, particularly really did. you know her footwork and her willingness to kind of stay in rallies as opposed to try and just go all or nothing all the time. And on clay. On clay, exactly. And she still doesn't have a plan B, but but her game has more margin now than it did, you know, two and a half years ago or five years ago. So that was really great. And I kind of thought that the loss at Wimbledon wasn't really anything to panic about, that it was kind of a weird one-off. I never really saw it as, uh, oh, you know, there's a crisis moment for Sharapova. So that was my initial reaction. You know, I do, I do believe that the reason that she cited, which is that he didn't want to travel as much, is true. It didn't really sound like something that was, you know, code for anything else. No. But yeah, I think that generally it was a it was a surprising move. I think so, too. I was definitely didn't see it coming. I mean, the loss to DeBrito was not a good one, especially, I mean, on paper. She lost in straight sets to Michelle Larcher DeBrito, who's ranked way outside the top 100, even if Michelle did play pretty well that day. Just the way that Sharapova just couldn't dig her way out of it. 
I could see at least raising a few more question marks if in her mind, maybe in his mind also, and if he also had this lingering, wanting to spend more time with his family aspect to his life. I don't know if the timing is a complete coincidence there. And also, this is one of the natural gaps in the season, just generally. This is a time to make changes. There's a pretty big gap for players who aren't playing the small U.S. events to come make some tweaks. You see Roger Federer having a new racket this time of year, other things going on just in terms of shifts and stuff. This is a, one of the few natural breaks it's not the actual offseason so i think players use it accordingly how do you think Courtney, that jimmy connors and maria sharapova will get along let's move to that aspect the picking of connors because that's a very very high profile move for sharapova very high profile and, and somewhat surprising i mean clearly they they she seems to think they get they get along well I've, I've never seen them interact so i can't gauge you know i think on the whole from a competitor's as, aspect and as tennis players they have similar mentalities you know just kind of on court just being you know kind of legendary competitors and and obviously they compete in different ways i think connor's was probably much more fiery Yes, and in your face uh, with respect to his opponents, and Sharapova's is, is much more of an internal kind of slow burn that she kind of brings to the table. Most, but most of the time, most, most of the time, time. some most could time. argue that you know, with the screaming and the sometimes loud fist pumping and stuff, that she's more intimidating. You know, just as intimidating as he was on court in a lot of ways. Yeah, but is she fist pumping at her opponents? Not always, but she is shouting, you know, run, run, stuff like that. So I don't know. Yes, okay, yeah, you're talking about like a handful of like five incidences. No, I like... am, I am, I am. I, but I think I think in terms of trying to be an intimidating presence, I think that's she's an intimidating right. presence. But like I said, it's it's different. It I don't think that different. it's at all the same as what Connors did. That being said, I think the immediate thing that when you look at Maria's game as the thing that needs improving is how she competes against the best player in the world, Serena. And so that's really where I think with Hogstead, there was kind of this sense maybe within her own head or within her camp that that maybe his tactics that he was giving her to play Serena or how he was trying to prepare her to play Serena wasn't cutting it. And obviously it wasn't, um, although she did start to play better, you know, recently against Serena. But yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing. And when you really think about it, I think five of the last six meetings that Serena and Maria have had have been in tournament finals. Yeah. And so when you think about just what kind of a block this has been for Maria with respect to just on court, her career of the title she's been unable to win just because she can't get over this, you know, it's the biggest thing in her game that needs fixing, not not tactics and not footwork and not volleys or serve anymore. Right. It's all serene. It's all mental. And I think I was joking. I was thinking about it in my head. I was like, Jimmy's probably the only one that if she were to interview, like if she had like an interview, like line of coaches didn't go well when she asked do you think i can beat serena <laughs> like you know like there's no i mean he might be the one who because of his in his in your face style and the way that he competed against borg and McEnroe and you know nastasi like all of those guys who he didn't always have great records against but you know kind of found his way th- through those rivalries maybe that's what she needs she needs kind of that lendl type presence to be like you can do this and yeah. i believe you can and then so ruthless about it. Yeah, exactly. And and almost delusional mm-hmm. in a way. Like because I think with Maria she's not an idiot. I mean, she's she is quite the pragmatist and I think that when she steps on court against Serena, she doesn't really believe she can win. No. And it did look good at the beginning of the, their friendship and final they played was their best match in a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think that at the beginning of that match, obviously Sharapova got off to 2-0 or 3-0 lead, I think, and really looked like she was in control and played really well the entire match actually. But Serena's better player than Sharapova, both both of their best, and one out. But I think there are things that Sharapova can learn to do to really find weaknesses in Serena's game that most players haven't found to do. I mean, there's no player who nowadays has Serena's number. There's nobody. Yeah. So I think that obviously it's a tough ask, but that does need to be her 
concern, keeping Azarenka at bay mm-hmm. in the rest of the field, and then making up ground on Serena. If you start winning one out of every four matches with Serena, that's an improvement. I mean, you don't have to win <laughs> all of just them. You don't have to totally one. turn the tables. <laughs> yeah, just one. Win just one. one win with Serena. And then I'm sure, hopefully, Jimmy put a big bonus in his contract for the first time she beat Serena. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is kind of like going big. You know, yeah. I mean, I think that from Sharapova hiring Connors, it is kind of a like, okay, I'm throwing all my chips in, somewhat literally, because he doesn't come cheap. No. So she's going to have to pay him a lot of money. She has a lot of money. And That's she that. has a lot of money. But it, it's kind of going all in to say, like, you know, I'm committed to fixing this yes. and not just kind of teetering away kind of between two and three and, you know, winning a few titles here and there and contending at slams. And I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting, I don't know. It's an interesting move. I mean, I make the summer hard courts very, very interesting. Yeah, he'll be a fun person. He'll be an interesting person to have in the WTA scene. <laughs> yeah. I think having Jimmy Connors be like, not that, you know, well, yeah, just imagine him like sitting around the player's lounge in Istanbul or something <laughs> like talking to, you know, Radvanska's parents and, Patrick Mortoglu and Sarah Ronnie. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's just it weird, really weird. interacting with these people. I mean, I just wonder socially how that's going to be for him. Like, exactly, to, yeah. You know, because it's not like it's the guy's locker room where he can kind of chat it up. I mean, it's, well, maybe who knows how much he's going to travel. I don't know. Like, is he going to do the Asia swing with her? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. For enough money, I bet he would. He's done promoting his book for the most part. Well, so. that's true. That's true. And there is that aspect of it where you just kind of, you know, the cynic in, in me says, you know, this is kind of not even kind of this is a complete publicity grab from Connor's perspective. I don't know, a grab to stay relevant. I mean, if he has like if he has like the book sitting on the chair next to him when he's in her box and we can be exactly suspicious. But yeah, I think I, it's interesting. It's a good challenge for him. I mean, it has to be hard sometimes for players, especially someone of Connor's age and stature to find things in life now that, you know, are worthwhile challenges for them. Mm-hmm. intellectually or competitively or whatever. So this is a good... I could see him relishing the sort of prize fight with Serena aspect of this. Yeah. So it just seems like in general, with Hogstead being let loose and a bunch of other coaches on the table now that maybe weren't, Courtney, you were talking about this as sort of a time of flux on the coaching carousel. Can you sort of flush out for people what that what this means and what's going on right now? Yeah, I mean, typically, you know, one of the big struggles, I think, particularly in the women's game, is the availability of, of top-level coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of that, obviously, is impacted by academies and by, like, the Adidas Player Development Program and, you know, federations who kind of keep their coaches locked down in kind of a more strict, formalized structure and, and there are fewer kind of free agent, big-name coaches uh-huh. ever ever available. Um, and to the ones that, are, that do exist are almost always you know, locked in with a top player for a significant amount of time. So um, right now, I mean, you do have, you know, not Nigel Sears and Anna Ivanovich have split. So so Sears is a a relatively big name to have out there. It would take a lot of money, but um, but he's there. Even Hogstead, if you had somebody who was willing to kind of have him on even just a part time basis or something like that and train in Sweden, you know, maybe maybe a Scandinavian player, perhaps, perhaps a Scandinavian player, although that Scandinavian player has said that it's not in the cards. That Scandinavian player said, we should stop making up stories about her. Yeah, I think it's just funny because, again, it's this whole thing of, like, the media making making stuff up. And it's like, no, dude, it was your own local, like, it's one media outlet. It was a Danish media outlet. Don't say the media as though, like, the whole world was reporting that you, that you yeah. had switched coaches or that you had hired Hogstedt, Caroline. Like, it was one outlet. <laughs> and also, let's talk about Caroline specifically as a case study. What Caroline's hard to read now, though, because there's so many mixed messages coming from her father, I guess, in terms of, and her, in terms of if they're looking for someone, if they're not, if they want outside help, if they don't. I mean, 
if I was a coach, that would not seem like a specially desirable situation to glom onto right now. Not at all. I mean, I think that's a really big question in terms of what coach would want to be put in that situation because it's a very unique one with Caroline. And I think in a lot of ways, that's why everybody was kind of looking towards Hogstedt because he was in many ways perfectly suited and still is perfectly suited for Team Wozniacki. He's kind uh-huh. of used to being... You know, he's he's kind of a tactical guy and a technical guy. He doesn't want to, like, hang out, you know, hang out with her outside of the, the court. He's used to kind of having somebody in the shadows that he also has to deal with, whether it's Yuri or Mike Joyce at the, at the time that he was initially brought on. He's kind of used to all that and, and, and is just really an on-court guy. Like, I just want to, like, coach you on court. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, that seemed to maybe be able to work and it doesn't seem like he's got like a huge ego either no, I either so. i don't think so so yeah i mean it, it, in a lot of ways it's a perfect fit but you know if what he says is true that he doesn't want to travel then no it's, it's... it also seems like there's just a bunch more people going to these sort of non-full-time arrangements with coaches now mm-hmm. i mean we heard just today that for example like the usda has brought in brad gilbert i guess as a sort of consultant and he's down mm-hmm. in florida working with a bunch of usda players including ryan harrison who's really had a rough 12 months. I think he was top 50 this time last year, and now he is around 132. So that's quite a fall for Ryan. Just 22 spots ahead of Donald Young. I mean, that gives you kind of as and much Donald as... Donald Young isn't even playing well. Exactly. I mean, that gives you some sort of context in terms of as much as everybody kind of rips on Donald Young and says that guy should retire and he shouldn't be playing tennis anymore and what a joke and all these sorts of things. Like, Harrison's only 22 spots ahead of him. Yeah. Harrison is still young, yes. younger than people realize, I think. 21. He's been around a while, so he's only 21. But yeah, he is. He, he could definitely use some outside help or some fresh voice or something at this point, it seems like, just to sort of get him back on track. Because he might not be the number one and top 10 and Grand Slam champion he said he would be, or he said he could be. But he should at least be able to hang a little bit closer to the top 50. He shouldn't have peaked at 20. Well, he shouldn't be ranked below like a Jack Sock. He should be a top 75 guy. Yeah. So we're not asking, we're not asking a lot. We're just saying better than it is now because he's going right. to need a wild card at the US Open for someone who hasn't really had any major injury problems or anything like that. Right. So yeah, so that's sort of an arrangement Brad Gilbert coming there. A bunch of players are working with Adidas people in Vegas, I think. Darren Cahill and Sven Grunfeld are there, and that's always sort of an interesting arrangement they have going there. The modern marketplace sometimes requires flexibility and innovation or something. I guess so, but the, you only laud innovation if it works. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I'm curious to know how helpful it actually is to do like a two, three week training block with somebody and then have that person disappear. Like, what do you better, suppose? I don't, think it, I don't think, I think it's better than nothing. Maybe. Yeah, it's better than nothing, but is it actually helping? You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I just don't think that it's, I, I don't think that it's feasible. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely not an ideal situation. And a lot of those, I mean, with Harrison, for example, he needs like somebody, like he needs like a hard ass on him on every single day. Yeah. Not because he's lazy and not because of anything. I mean, he has the work ethic and he has the drive and the dedication, but he needs kind of a new voice that's that's in there kind of like with him on a daily basis and keeping him accountable and keeping him focused. And, you know, you can do all the right training for three weeks but or two weeks, but, but after that, then what? And sometimes you wonder if it's, I don't know, is it better than nothing or is it just better to just like be establishing that sort of rhythm with your own team. I'm just talking out loud. I'm just wondering. But I mean, it's just hard because as these coaches are kind of doing that, obviously you have like a Brad Gilbert, for example, who works for ESPN. So he can't be a full-time coach. He'd be a great coach. Cahill, obviously everybody would pay him millions and bazillions of dollars. Oh, yeah. 
to coach them. He is like the probably number one sought after coach who like can't coach anybody full time and doesn't want to because he's with Adidas and he's also a commentator as well. So I've talked to players about that. I talked to Ernest Gulbis about it. Cause Ernest worked with him in 2011, I think when he mm-hmm. won like LA that random time. Yeah. And he was saying like, it's great working with Darren. Darren's awesome, but I need something more than, you know, someone who hangs around Vegas isn't available on a very part-time shared basis. Right. I mean, it's a difference between yeah. like going to university via correspondence and like going to university. You know what I mean? Like just the account is like, you can get your assignments and you can do your little, you know, okay, I'm, I need to do this and here are your tactics and whatever. But you kind of do need the daily hourly accountability of having a full-time coach. You sound very international saying going to university. By I way. know. I'm still, I'm still like coming down from british yeah exactly to wash a little bit more of the excess britishness off exactly i still like i still say like go on holiday instead of go on vacation it's horrible like my entire it's all it's just bad (laughs) you better not be doing this when i see you in cincinnati courtney i'm just i won't i won't i'll be back to whatever american i talk american i talked american a lot in britain everybody was giving me weird looks Okay, that's fair. But yes, I mean, back to the coaching. I mean, you know, we'll see. I mean, Bartoli said that she wanted to hire or get her some her team more solidified after the, after Wimbledon. She said that before she won Wimbledon. So maybe the team that she has, she's perfectly happy with now. The team that she has is probably going to be charging her a lot more now, too. <clears throat> exactly. So, you know, you do have a, a good number of kind of top level pl- uh, top level players who could do with kind of some more stable, stabilized coaching. And there are some bigger names out there. So I can't think that Nigel Sears is going to remain like on the market for much longer i would agree with that but i also don't think that there's a lot of players who could pay what he wants yeah so who knows it's a small, it's a small group of people who have the outside money the ivanoviches the sharapovas to really spend without limit on these things so it's not a level playing field necessarily whatsoever correct one of the other surprising pieces of news that came out this week involves the tournament in san diego which i think is in desperate need of some publicity Mm-hmm. generally, as it stands on the tour. They got a nice little stroke of good fortune or whatever when it was announced that Martina Hingis will be playing doubles there in the main draw, not one of these legend things that she's been playing by only being, you know, in her late 20s and early 30s now, but an actual doubles tournament with Daniela Hantikova. Whether or not this is a one-off at this point seems unclear, but Courtney, generally, what do you make of this latest comeback of Martina Hingis and what it might mean? Look, if this comes, if this, what I'm about to say comes back to bite me it, later, I'm totally fine with it and happy if it does. But why is everybody making such a big deal about this? <laughs> like, I don't understand. Like, all of a sudden, like, my Twitter, my RSS feeds and everything was like, Martina Hingis is coming back. No, she's not. Like, she's, represent- <laughs> she's represented by Octagon. She's paired up with an Octag- another Octagon player, Daniela Hantakova, at the SoCal Open, which is owned and managed and operated by Octagon. Uh-huh. And the tournament, their official clothing supplier is Tonic, which is her clothing brand. Like, this is a marketing opportunity. It's not a comeback. And so is it? A, it's a one-off to help, like, her management agency, in my opinion. I would be surprised if we saw it happen you know often after that and if it does happen there's i just would have to think there's always going to be some sort of marketing tie-in <laughs> yeah but yeah i just don't i don't don't see what the big deal is i would mostly agree with that i think the timing of it right after her hall of fame induction is interesting because i think if she had done it before the hall of fame induction they would have had to like postpone it because she was unretired so she waited to get in the hall of fame right and then comes back so i see what you did there martina exactly also I'd be surprised if she came out to play a full tour schedule. I could see her, like, maybe, like, taking a wild card into a slam or two or something. Because she still totally has the game. I mean, I saw her play with the Washington Castles last week. And saw her 
win in singles and doubles. I mean, she's still, from what I hear, she trains all the time. I mean, I actually asked Renee about this. I know Renee is like, been on the Legends sort of circuit with her as well, and also in the World Team Tennis world. But yeah, I mean, Martina is still very sharp, would still be easily like a top 10 doubles player if she wanted to be. But the motivation question is the main thing there. I mean, does she really want to be a full-time player? I think a singles comeback is another bridge completely. And I think with her especially, I mean, sure, she could come back and be a top 30 singles player fairly easily, but is that enough for her? I kind of doubt it. I'm also kind of, like, annoyed is not the right word. But, like, you get inducted into the Hall of Fame and then you come back, like... Like, let's, let's argue, just for argument's sake, like, she, because you threw it out there, like, this whole idea of, like, maybe she might come back for, like, doubles full time, or maybe she'll come back for singles and play singles, because she'd still be really good. It's like, dude, you're in the Hall of Fame, you're done. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I feel about it. Like, if you thought that you were going to come back, or, like, whatever, then just, like, decline your Hall of Fame induction for a little while, and, and go play and finish out your career, because the Hall of Fame kind of implies that your career is done. What if she coached Maria Sharpova? Yeah, okay. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I just don't take it seriously. I really, really don't. And I think that and, and part of my cynicism is related to kind of her induction Hall of Fame induction speech, where at the end, she like straight up plugs tonic and is like, so if you guys want to buy it at Tennis Warehouse, like feel free. This is your induction speech into the Hall of Fame. Like and like you totally Serena on HSN it. It was uh-huh awkward i think it's impressively shameless it is impressively shameless it's it's hall of fame worthy shameless but it's just you know i'm not yeah i i just don't take it seriously and if i'm wrong then i'm happy to be wrong but i am not gonna feed the marketing like the shameless marketing grab beast that it is i think a lot of it will depend on how well she does in carlsbad honestly i think that if people don't really remember before she made her full-time comeback in 2006 she made a very short-lived comeback in 2005. She played uh, Pattaya City, and that was it. And she lost in the first round to 73rd-ranked Marlene Weitgardner, which no one remembers. And then that was her only tournament she played that entire year. And then she came back in full like a year later. But I think if she goes out and wins the San Diego title, then we'll see her as like a full-time doubles person for at least a little while. I think Maybe. so. Maybe. I know John McEnroe also used to play some one-off doubles tournaments pretty late, like, after he retired, like, within the last decade. And they want to say he played, like, San Jose or something in doubles. I might be making this up. He played something. That's fine. I just, I don't know. I mean, either you're on the tour or you're off the tour. Like, just jumping in to play one-off doubles whenever you feel like it, it's just, it's so, it's just so fickle. But wasn't it also ridiculous for her to be playing Legends doubles when she was 29? Not necessarily. That's... Okay. I don't think I don't beating up an old lady. No, I mean I, she's a legend of tennis. At 29, her career was done. Yeah. That you know, I, I mean to me that I don't I don't really have a problem with that at all because it again, it, your career is done. So whatever you do after that, yeah, it's fine. But kind of just jumping in and playing doubles, one-offs, I don't know. I mean, even just from a really, you know, kind of gross way to think about it, like basically like taking money that like all these other hardworking like early 20-year-old doubles players are trying to trying to scrap for. Just because what? Like you're bored? I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't sit well with me. I don't. I don't see it quite that way. I don't see her as taking candy from babies or anything like that. I think that if she wants to do it, she can do it. I think she'll probably lose interest in it pretty soon. But exactly. That's the thing. In the meantime, why not? You know, if you're bored, why not go enter a tournament and do well if you know you still can? I guess. Fair enough. One of the other big comebacks that will be getting more attention as the summer season rolls along. It's the comeback of Elisa Klebanova, 
who I wrote a story about in April when she made her comeback to get a protected ranking solidified in April or May in Pennsylvania. I don't think we ever talked about that on here. So she was there, clearly very rusty, but she won a future, 10K futures as a qualifier, and sort of working her way back. She asked for a Wimbledon wild card and did not get it, and then she's been playing world team tennis this summer, and I saw her last week, and she looked really, really good. She was only playing uh, doubles and mix the time I saw her, because she's on a team with Vanya King, who's obviously a pretty solid singles player as well. And, yeah, I mean, she's going to be coming back in a big way, and I think it's going to be a big story. I have some audio from her, and briefly from Andy Roddick talking about her. It was actually cool seeing the two of them interact, because, like, during breaks, Andy Roddick was giving Claves like, serving tips and stuff. And she was just, like, eating it up. She was so excited about it. So, anyway, it was cool. Courtney, I don't know if we talked about Clavin over that much on the show, but I know that you are a big um, admirer of what she brings to the table, the sweaty, the sweaty table. Yeah, the very sweaty table. I, I feel about Alyssa Klebanova not dissimilarly to how I feel about Marion Bartoli, which okay. is that I think that in a lot of ways, some back in the day when she would play people were just kind of confused, including myself initially, just confused by what I was seeing because she has this really severe he- uh, head snap yeah. when she hits the ball. And it, if you ever go through photo wires and, and you have to kind of, you know, get photos for her matches or things like that, like it just looks violent. It, it looks like her neck has snapped and it's just this really weird form. But I still remember the match where she beat Ivanovich at the Australian yeah. Open and I want to say 2009, 2010. 2009 is correct, yeah. Yeah, 2009, where... She just, it was a great match from her. And generally speaking, it was a great match. Yeah. But she just displayed this remarkable ability, not unlike, again, Bartoli, of playing defense. Of You look at her and you just don't think that she has the foot speed. It's deceptive speed, which is a backhanded compliment. But we, we know what it means. But you know what it means. It doesn't look like she should be getting to that many balls, but she could. And, it, and I think that that was the match that kind of turned me on Alyssa Klebanova, where I was like, yeah. you know what? I absolutely respect like you and what you do on the tennis court. And she does have that same kind of Bartolian, like, this is me. This is how I go about my business. Like, I don't care. And on top of all that, again very much like Bartoli. She's a tremendously nice person. She's so easy to talk to, so smart, really quick to laugh. And all these things are, I guess, just things that you just wouldn't think when you watch her play because she looks like kind of your stereotypical, like intense Russian. Super intense. Yeah, but like off court, like she's like, she's so nice. (laughs) So yeah, so I root for her. And obviously, especially after, you know, her health troubles as well. And she looks great. She does look like, great. Like, physically, she looks better now than she did before. Yeah. So she had, I believe, Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm-hmm. And so she's come back from that. She got diagnosed with that in 2011, I believe, mm-hmm. around the Rome tournament when it happened. And then she had a short comeback in Miami 2012. Now it was back full-time. You can read a story I wrote about her in April, which sort of summarizes what's been going on with that. Then, yeah, so I talked to her, and I talked to Andy Roddick briefly about her. And, uh, yeah, she was in a good mood. Courtney, I know one of the things, you have a story about Klebanova and uh, Snezani Yankovic. <laughs> yes, it was at Carlsbad 2010. Okay. Must have been 2010. And Yankovic and Klebanova were playing, and it was a late-night match. It was actually, if I recall, not 
cold. Well, I, maybe it was warm. I don't know. But at one point, I mean, one of the things that Alyssa Klebanova is famous for is the fact that she is very sweaty. Mm-hmm. Shocker. She's an athlete, but she sweats a lot. And occasionally in her matches, she'll kind of wring the sweat out of her hair. And it's it's kind of disgusting. <laughs> and then it becomes kind of amusing. They literally take her ponytail and just like twist it and like liquid yes, will pouring out of it. Exactly. It, it literally pouring out of it. It's incredible. It's actually really incredible. <laughs> like it's kind of fascinating. But <laughs> at one point during the match, she like walked over and I don't, I'm pretty sure Alyssa did not know that Snezana Yankovic was sitting where she was sitting, which was courtside, <laughs> but she rings out her ponytail right in front of Snezana uh, Yankovic's mom and she just made the like totally classic gross out face (laughs) and i think i still have like this grainy picture taken on my cell phone of like the puddle of sweat (laughs) in front of snazana as she continued to cheer on yankovic and i think snazana i think if i remember the story correctly took out her own camera and took a photo of the puddle as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think so it was epic and again it it's just totally all of it just endears me so much to Klebanova because on top of all that she's a she's a tremendous on-court fighter she's a really good competitor so we're gonna hear from Andy Roddick about Klebanova and then hear from Klebanova herself so enjoy that you know my my team played great yeah. I I uh I was probably the worst person here tonight they played great the girls yeah. played phenomenal yeah. in in, in to see Elisa come out and, uh, and and play well after everything she's gone through and just smile and it was awesome. I I, I really had fun watching tonight. Last question. You think uh, Vanya King was the MVP tonight? Oh, you know she was she was great. I don't want to take anything away from her. Um, I feel like Alyssa and I, I think uh, no offense to Jules, he would probably tell you the same thing. She carried uh, she carried in the mixed doubles. You know, um, you know as bad as I was in singles, Julian was trying to beat me in mixed doubles. So so she gets. <laughs> but uh, she was phenomenal tonight. And uh, Vanya, hey, listen. We don't win if they don't step up. Just, how are you feeling great. back it's here now? It's nice to be playing again. You seem much like yeah, sharper like, now than in yeah, obviously. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, first match. it's a lot better now. And, well, I didn't get a chance to play singles yet, but you know, playing mixed and doubles every day, it's just getting better and better for me because you know, I haven't played any doubles matches for the last two years. So in the beginning, it was kind of like difficult because everything is so different. But right now, I'm really you know enjoying it so much and. I feel, you know, as I said, better and better every day, so I really hope it's going to help for my singles too, because it's always good to change things and do something different, put some volleys into your game, you know, and and uh, for the reaction, and, you know, I think it's just a great experience to play this, you know, modern match in tennis, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Like, it's something, you know, it's my first time, and I really enjoyed it so far, and I think it's it's great for my singles career and whatever I have in the future. So. I heard I heard that you're on the list for Canada for singles. Is that right? Yeah, for for Toronto and Cincinnati too. Very cool. And U.S. Open? Yes, probably I'm gonna play that too. Oh, with protected ranking? Yes. Okay, cool. And what happened with Wimbledon? I know you. I heard that you asked. Well, for a yeah. Card. Well, I've asked for a wild card, and you know the answer was negative. But you know it's it's everybody made a very big story out of it. But you know I completely respect the decision of the organizer organizers and I mean it's it's their tournament and it's their choice who to pick for a wild card and everything and plus you know I requested a wild card last year and they gave it to me actually in the main draw but I had to refuse it because I wasn't feeling at my 100% I wasn't feeling good so you know personally I, I, I just I didn't feel like you know it was fair to take it and just go out there and like perform just like you know this year I really wanted to play that tournament, but you know it happened like that, and it's okay for me. You know, it's it's I, I kept playing small tournaments, you know, getting more matches in, and then 
And you know, right now for You're me, the most now, important yeah. is to compete. You know, no yeah. matter what I play. Yeah. I mean, this tournament doesn't give me any points, but you know, it's, it's still every match is a match, and it helps me to get confidence to, you know, to put new things in my game and, and to get better, keep improving. You getting some serving tips from Andy? With yeah, that, right? it's really great. Yeah, he's, what would he, you say? he's helping me out my serving, and you know, it's just fantastic to have him on the team. And Did I he mean, say anything specific about your serve? Any specific no, points I mean, you can share? I mean, he, a good he's, guy to give advice for Yeah, that. yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, his serve is just unbelievable. And, I mean, I've been playing better and better every day just because I was watching him play all the time. And, yeah. you know, it's just such a great thing to have such a unbelievable athlete in front of you and, like, be able, like, to communicate and ask him something. And he's, like, just such a great team, great guy and a team person. And he supports us a lot. And, you know, it's, it's just unbelievable. It's just so great. And uh, I really appreciate it. And... and you know, it's, I really hope, you know, we're going to have keep winning and, and doing our best. No, just last question on Wimbledon. Did they give you an explanation for why? No, no, they didn't say anything, you know. They usually just, you know, send you the list of the wildcard accepted and just said, you know, you we're sorry, on. but you're not, you know, no. you're, you're negative for this year. So it's not like... You know, didn't really explain anything. That's, okay. well, That's fine for me. I mean, yeah. I, I forgot about it. The minute I got the negative answer, I was focusing on my next tournaments to play in, and like this event right here. You know, it's just. I mean, it's tennis. It's good. We have tournaments every week. So yeah. if you don't play the one, you have another one. I mean, it's of course it's a big difference to play Wimbledon or like a 10k challenger. But you know, for me now, I just want to play. So it's, I really want to play and hopefully get my ranking up and be able to play Wimbledon next year with my own ranking. That's the way, you know. And now we can call up Renee. Yes. Hi, guys. Hi, Renee. How are you? Hi. Good, thanks. Awesome. Well, thanks for, thanks for joining us on this. We appreciate it. No problemo. It's all because you two keep me so interested on Twitter. <laughs> we do our best. We do our best. <laughs> I know now. Cody, you literally make me laugh out loud sometimes, so it's only because of that. Oh, fantastic! Well, you know what? That's easy. That's not the that's not the hard part. <laughs> it put up with everything. Exactly, having to put up with just like the 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 craziness of Twitter. I mean, do you enjoy Twitter, or do you like? Is it like? Do you read your mentions? Do you interact with fans? Uh, I try not to. <laughs> yeah, um, I was gonna say. <laughs> I I try not to because then, then I get the. Uh, you know, the inevitable person that thinks they're my best friend. Like, this, I have, like, two guys that constantly write me questions, and I'm like, dude, really? <laughs> like, I, I responded one time to you, and then my second maybe tweet to you was, like, kind of a bit of annoyance, and you still keep writing me. It's like, <laughs> if I wrote back to every single person, I wouldn't have a friggin' life. Yeah, that's pretty much me, so, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I have to imagine that for any player or commentator, it's it's not it's not fun to see all, I mean, like, the nice comments are nice, but invariably, there's other comments, and it's annoying. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I do write to the nice people every now and but even, even that, I mean, if I wrote back to everybody who's nice to me, too, I, I'd kind of just be like, it would sound redundant, and be like, oh, thanks, oh, thanks. Oh, thanks, you know. <laughs> oh, aren't I awesome? Thanks. <laughs> it, it's, hard, it's hard being this awesome, basically, is what we're saying. It's uh, a lot of work. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. Uh, I do get the inevitable dickhead as well. Yeah, of course. That's every, that's every 10 minutes. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so you work a lot as a commentator. I think you probably, well, you can explain it better than I can who you work for, but you work for probably more different outlets than, like, anybody. Is that probably fair I to say? I have off the record the biggest whore in television. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
That's a good thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think I, I, I worked with Channel 7 Australia. I mean, that was kind of my first real sort of contract that I had as far as, you know, they want me for two years. So it was that. And then, of course, you know, Tennis Channel came kind of late to the party thinking that I was going to be working for ESPN. And then I said I wasn't going to be working ESPN Grand Slams. And they jumped all over me and were like, well, we want you as much as possible. And then ESPN still want to use me. So... I mean, in a way, it's really great, you know, so I can get to do whatever I want. And I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have worked at NBC Olympics if I'd been, you know, with ESPN, for sh- you know what I mean? So, mm. so certain things have worked out really well for me. Are there big differences between working those four different places? I mean, Australia and US TV for starters and then the other ones? Or, is it, or does it just feel like all kind of the same to you? I, they're all a little bit different, you know, uh, different, different sort of audiences. So you have to sort of really catered to that as well. For example, tennis channel audience is going to be very different to the Australian audience because the Australian audience watches tennis like once a month. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? So, or literally for one month a year. So, um, you know, so you have to be, you have to dumb it down a little bit, not be so technical on everything. And then tennis channel, they want you to, you know, give as much information as possible. And same with ESPN. ESPN want you to talk nonstop. So it's, it's just crazy, which I think is too much. Yeah. Which which so, type of com- which type of commentary do you enjoy the most? Like, do you enjoy like sitting courtside and kind of doing that thing, or being in the booth, or or manning the desk and kind of being not talking about matches but general stuff? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think um, I really like the personal side of you know um, TV as well. Like my 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 biggest goal I find is to try and get the human side of tennis mm. and the human side of the players out onto screen. Even if I'm doing a match, I, I try and put the emotional sort of human side and human touch of why people do what they do on the court rather than just the X's and O's. Because I think I'm such an emotional player, I tap into the emotional side of a player. I think a lot better than a lot of other people. So I can even have a feeling that the match is about to change on one point and it's because I think I was so in touch with my emotions that I knew how that felt to lose that point, you know, that type mm-hmm. of a point and how that could affect somebody and knowing how they react in certain ways and also knowing players and how they are personally and how they react and respond to certain things. So I do like the interaction of like a, an interview somebody that I, I know and get along with, which is you know thankfully most of the most of the players. The hosting part of like in Paris was really a learning curve for me. It was really really different for me to have to actually host and be essentially a play-by-play person. That was a massive learning curve. It's probably the only time I've ever been truly nervous on TV. Was the first day or two at the French Open when I was essentially the host. And I was like, okay, don't screw this up. <laughs> this is really hard. You know, it was so much harder because inevitably being an analyst or an expert is like literally just talking about something you know, you know. So, and that's never been an issue for me. You know, it's, it's, that comes so naturally. And I, even when I'm doing TV, when people are like, oh, well, what do you want to talk about? Or, you know, how about if I talk to you about this? I'm like, listen, I look at them and go, don't tell me what you want to talk about. Don't ask me what I'm, what I would like to talk about. Just throw me whatever you want. Cause I'm so much better when I'm off the cuff anyway. So I don't like to go over what I'm going to say because inevitably you end up screwing it up. And you're, most of the time with me, my first reaction is usually, well, in TV, is usually my best. Mm-hmm. So because I'm such a reactionary person like in life, sometimes I need to reevaluate some of my things that I say and do. But on TV, I think <laughs> I know I can't drop the F-bomb, so I do pace myself. So um, 
in that respect, I think the first thing out of my mouth is usually the most honest and usually the most real. So I don't know. The hosting definitely was a was a massive learning curve for me, and I'm hoping to get better and better at that because I also know that it's kind of I think where where I will find my niche at some point because. I'm going to get inevitably passed over by somebody who's bigger and better and more well-known for me as far as I was concerned. So I need to be able to go into every area. So when you talk about tennis on TV, though, I mean, we see, you know, players gathered around TVs in the lounges or the restaurants or locker rooms or whatever. I mean, is talking about tennis on TV that different than the things you used to say to whoever your friends were when you were in a player's lounge? Oh, my God, As an God, amateur yes. just watching on TV, yeah. <laughs> My goal is to do a cable show on and actually commentate a match and say what I really want to say. There you go. Well, <laughs> or, this is your chance. This, this can, you can be Renee Subs uncensored right now. One, one, one day, Subs, you and I need to need to commentate a matter uncensored, and it would be the exactly. most entertaining match ever. <laughs> it po- it possibly could be, and I actually, to be honest with you, I think we should do it and just have it out in our own archive for future. <laughs> I. Um, but, but, you know, I'll be in the locker room and I hand the stuff that comes out of my mouth watching matches and doing stuff and people are like, why did you say that on TV? I'm like, no, <laughs> that is not allowed. I find that I'm when I'm actually doing um, actual matches as well, I find that I'm, I, I think I'm a, sort of a person that um, sometimes I get a little bit negative with certain things, but when I'm doing commentary and when I'm talking about my sport, I'm very, very passionate about it and I'm very positive about it. And I also try and be positive about players and, like I said, what they're dealing with and what they go through out there. I, I don't pretend to sit there and be like, oh, I would have totally done this and, oh, I would never have screwed that up because I would have probably done the exact same thing, if not worse. So <laughs> my goal is to try and make people understand that the people that you see on TV are very, very human and they react to certain things, and if they're emotional and they crack a racket, there's a reason. You know, if they don't and they become very, like, they switch off and they're not emotionally in touch with what's going on out there, that's probably how they are in real life. So that's how they're dealing with pressure. So, yeah, I mean, when, I, when I'm talking to, to friends or to people that really are watching a match, I mean, I try and be sort of, I'll be a little more, more candid, but when I'm talking about it on air, then I try and be a little bit more positive about it all. That's probably smart. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and and if I didn't, I would, uh, you know, inevitably lose my job. So yeah. self-preservation, that's smart. So I mean, yeah. you've been, you you were you were on the game for quite a while. You retired pretty late in your career. You had a good long career. How how different is the game now, just in general terms, um, when you started back in the I guess early nineties, or were you playing in, in the eighties even? In the Stone Ages. Um, yeah. <laughs> I really started probably playing in nineteen ninety. Was my first full year. That's the okay. first year I think I qualified for Wimbledon. I played a little bit before that, but I'd probably say that was my first first real sort of year into it. So um, how how's it changed? I mean, listen, you know, you're going to hear the inevitable technology has really made a difference, and it has. Players have evolved because they've had to, because everybody hits the ball harder. You have to get to the ball quicker. Uh, how do you get to the ball quicker? Well, you've got to be faster. And how do you become faster? Well, you've got to have endurance. So you've got to be able to push yourself. You know, the training now is a lot harder because, you know, back in the day, I mean, you didn't have points that lasted the way they did with the amount of sprinting in between first, you know, shot from left to right, left to right. Um, So players have become incredibly fit. They've become incredibly, um, uh, you know, agile. And you see even, um, you know, with things like the way that Djokovic moves around the court and he splits and, you know, he's doing all this stretching and you see the work that Andy does off the guys and, I mean, Rod just kind of, just kind of like even 
when you look at him, he's an, he's an athlete. He's a true like natural athlete. But I think the other guys have worked even harder, if that's possible, to be physically stronger than him. Because I think they know that they can physically outlast him. Um, and of course, you know, Rafa is just a freak as well. So I think in, in the women's game, like sometimes I sit and watch matches from the sideline, I'm just absolutely blown away by how hard they're hitting the ball now. And I just, I do think that technology has definitely made a, a big difference in that, but also just in the training. And I think players have become bigger and stronger and every shot is so important now. There's not a lot of weaknesses in players. And if there's a weakness, it just gets absolutely exploited in like five minutes, you know? So. Yeah. There's not a top player that, that that has a weakness anymore, you know. As a ranker, I had a little bit of a weakness on mentally. It was very, you know, fragile and the forehand would go off and then all of a sudden, you know, her her mentally, she became much stronger. Her forehands are going in the court. Her serve is still a little bit of a question mark, but that even improved. So there was no big hole in her game, you know, and you see that mm-hmm. on a hard court. Um, I mean, Serena's just, she's just taking it to another level even you know, from 10 years ago when she came out and was playing unbelievable. So I just think it's improved so much. And I think inevitably everybody pushes each other and you, you become the standard of standard bearer. And that's kind of what these guys are now. And, and do you think, I mean, talk about it from just even like an emotional level. How have the players kind of changed in that way? And you were talking about how you, you like kind of, you know, bringing out the personalities and the emotions and being and empathizing with them. But like emotionally have the players changed from how they are now to how they were, you know, 10, 20 years ago? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's become such a, I mean, it really is, it is a business. It's become a business because the enormity of the money that's involved. And I just think the scrutiny and, um, you know, players screw up now. It's kind of all over the place. I mean, Twitter is like, you know, within five (laughs) seconds of, Within five seconds of Maria making the comments that Wimbledon were just like, you know, they're out there in the world, you know, um, not, it, it doesn't take a 24 hour news cycle, you know, and oh, out in the paper today, this is what she said. It's like, oh, it was like in five minutes. So, you know, the scrutiny on the players and they've, they've become a little bit more tight lipped because if they don't, inevitably it's like around the world in five minutes. So I think that they have become. They also understand sponsors uh, aren't going to back somebody who's becoming controversial. They they would rather go on the side of somebody who's doing really well but isn't going to tarnish their brand. So they also know that. So they've become a little bit brand-oriented as well. And I don't blame them in a lot of ways. Um, it's very to be sort of gregarious and outgoing and super awesome and not sort of be a little bit mischievous as well at some time. <laughs> Um, so I think they go hand in hand a little bit. Uh, you know, it's it's um, you know it's part of the business, unfortunately now. And and I think even on the court, everyone has to be so focused all the time. You cannot allow like a game or two of interruption by either cracking you know get get cracking the shits with somebody or like losing your mind for two games, and that could be the end of the match for you. You know, right. you think about someone like. As a ranker, you know, she's keeping it all in all the time. And Serena's keeping it in all the time. And both of them, all they want to do is break a racket, <laughs> scream, and, like, run around the court. You know, that's their personality. Maria's very sort of, you know, she's very tight-lipped and very professional. And that's how she handles herself off the court as well. So I think even her, she probably learned a big lesson at one moment because I think that affected her on the court, you know, the, all the controversy from the time. Because that's not normally how she is. Right. So, you know, I, I think that's another part of it. And I think that the guys have done a good job at not getting too controversial about certain things and 
I think Maria and Serena both learn a big lesson from that Wimbledon debacle. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting to hear you sort of relate their results there to that, because I know some people had, but yeah. No, I, for you, is that especially tough? Because I know that you're someone, obviously, who has a lot of opinions, and maybe it's a little bit different on the double circuit, but I mean, did you feel like uh, you had to be inhibited with what you could say or not say? Um. Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, it, it's no secret that, that I had certain things with certain players, uh, you know, one or two in particular, one in particular, uh, and, <laughs> you know... It, it, it got, you know, it, it, even that got out in the press, not by my, uh, not by, by my words or me putting it out there, but by another player putting it out there. And so it became a little bit sort of uh, talked about even minutely. So, I mean, would I like to tell people in the press or tell people of the world what kind of a person someone is? Absolutely. You know, um, I would love to put that out there. But the problem is it follows you every week. Right. So every week you're getting asked about it. So every week they're asking you about this person. So every week, you know, if you go and play that person in a match, ooh, the press is there. Ooh, it becomes more of a story. So it's like you're already stressed out enough. You've already got enough pressure on you. You already have to deal with so much as a professional tennis player. You don't want to add to the 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 stress even more. You already have to deal with the person in the locker room. You don't want to have to deal with them in the press and by the press and everybody that talks to you. So it's something like you just, you just don't say anything because it's just the easiest and best way to be. And it's, and it's also a classy thing to do. You know, it's just not that classy to be like in the press. Oh, do you really want to know what somebody's like? I mean, the press know, you know what I mean? I mean, you guys mm-hmm. know the issues, but you know when certain things are off the record, but you also know that there's certain things, unless a player says it to you, you can't print it. Or they say to you, oh, print that. You know, then you go, oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm printing this. You know what I mean? So for I mean, sure, that, that's why you have some people come around. Oh, so tell me about so and so. You're like, yeah, no. <laughs> you know, so that that's why. I mean, there's already enough pressure to deal with as a player. You don't want to put any more pressure. And I, and I really do believe that Serena and, and Maria were affected by that at Wimbledon. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a surprise, definitely a surprising moment. I think press conference from Maria's and I, I was there yeah, too. you were there. I thought I saw you there in the the right hand corner. First press conference I'd ever literally been to. <laughs> Other than Kim Clijsters' last one, because I, I tried to corral her with Moe Chandon to come to the Tennis Channel suite. Yep. But literally, I've never been to a press conference, and and, and uh, Channel 7 said to me, Renee, please go to the press conference. We just need to know what she says so you don't ask her the same question because we've already got her on tape. And I'm like, oh, fine. Ugh. I was so annoyed. And so I went to the press conference, and I sat there going, oh, my God, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I couldn't believe it came out of her mouth. I was like, oh, yeah. No, there were some definite dropped jaws in that press conference for sure. No, but the thing that amazed me the most is that nobody went, oh, what? You know, (laughs) well, you get a little bit of a murmur, but it was kind of like everyone sort of looked around like, did anyone hear that? Exactly. I mean, I think there was a part of me that was just like, I'm going to need to see the transcript to make heard what I think she just said. (laughs) That's what I said. (laughs) <laughs> oh God! Anyway, it was uh, it was quite the moment, but I think a moment that both of them learnt a lot from. Hopefully, sure. hopefully not. Hopefully they keep talking that way for our for our. Uh, yeah, for you guys. I'm trying we to love that. it. I mean, that was you know, your moment in in time. It will never. I promise you, it will never happen again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all it's always one of those things. Yeah, but what you were saying is absolutely right, which is the kind of you know we all know certain things go on behind the scenes, and we've all had off the record conversations, and there comes a point where you have to stop and think, well. 
okay, I know about this. Does that, is that affecting what they're doing on court? If so, then it's somewhat newsworthy, but if it doesn't, then it's not newsworthy at all. And it's just gossip. It doesn't need to be reported. Yeah. And, you know, but kind of making those connections is, is a tough minefield. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, you listen, you could go that route and, you know, be sensation for like a day, but you know also that your, your longevity in the sport is like, going to be minuscule if you were to do something like that as well oh yeah you know so. so for you just in terms of like you talked about like the on-court all the physical changes and stuff but like in the locker room in terms of like how players socialize with each other have things changed is it still like as friendly as it used to be or is it more so or less so or what's that like we don't see that side of it quite as much as you do um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think I think the locker room's always been pretty friendly. I think everyone's always, most on the most part, have always gotten along, and I don't think that that's changed at all. I mean, when you sit in um, when you sit at the in the locker room at Wimbledon, which you know, obviously everybody does this, you still have your neat, you know, you still have your little groups, and still have your certain, you know countries or certainly English-speaking people like sort of sitting in one area. Maybe you get the French going sitting down with, with in another area. But, I mean, overall, everyone gets along. I mean, you can sit, you can walk into the locker room at Wimbledon and everyone's sitting on the TVs and there's like seven or eight players just sitting on the couches together. I mean, they're all like crammed in on these little couches. And so that's something that has never changed. Um, you know, the members' locker room up at Wimbledon, you know, you still get people talking to one another and hanging out. It depends on the personalities, to be honest. I mean, the top players never really hang around all that much, to be honest. So uh, unless it's in a rain break, and then, you know, and then inevitably everyone sits around and starts chatting away and talking, and that's how it is. I don't think it's any less friendly over the last 10 years. <laughs> you know, you have your younger players all coming through now, and they all know each other, like Madison Keys and, you know, Jeannie Bouchard and Laura Robson, and they're all buddies, you know. Um, so, I mean, it's, it hasn't really changed all that much, to be honest. Yeah, because I know every time like Wimbledon rolls around, it there's all this like made not made up, but but it gets blown a little out of proportion, especially this tournament because of the whole Maria Serena thing. Like, oh, the WTA locker room is super catty, and nobody likes each other, and they all hate Serena, and they all hate Maria, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just in talking to the players myself, like it's never been my sense that that was kind of what the locker room was actually like. I mean, it seems like an no, okay place. No, I mean, listen, there are some players that don't particularly like each other. I mean, you don't have to absolutely. You don't have, you don't have to go into the locker room to know that. You just look at <laughs> yeah. the handshakes. You know, yeah, I mean, exactly. It doesn't. It doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out who doesn't like who. You know, when you see. People like Lee Na walked up to the up to the net after losing that match to Red Wanska and they hug each other. It's like, okay, you know, that's yeah. not fake, you know? Right. That's two that's two top women that really like each other as people and they also get along with everybody. And so when you see that and when you see, you know, Red Wanska not even look at sick when she shakes her <laughs> hand, it's like, Okay, we don't need to go into a locker room to know who likes each other. Right. Exactly. You, you right. know, I mean and, and, and that's okay. There's, there's guys that are like that that can't stand each other. I mean, I think that's what part of what people like about tennis is that you can tell so much about how people feel just from watching them play tennis. You know, it, it reveals a lot about people's characters and interactions with each other. Well, and also, by the way, I mean, what sport is individual like that where you share a locker room right next to one another? I mean, you know, basketball and all these other sports where they can hate each other and they can be, uh, you know, they go to opposite ends of the, the, the stadium and go into different lockers and they're around their teammates and they can be like, ah, F that guy. 
but they're around their friends, you know, and they're around their teammates. And then maybe later on, they'll see each other out of bar and be like, hey, dude, what's up? You know, but it's so different. Like in tennis, you're sharing your space with these people all the right. time, you know. You're having to play against them. You have to shake their hand in front of millions of people. And when you want to, like, slap them in the face, you know, it's like, it's, it is a very hard sport when you don't particularly like someone to have to play against them. And you see them every single week that you're on tour, you know, and that's the thing. Um, it's hard and there's some players that are awesome at it and some players that are not so great at it and their reputations precede them you know yeah I mean speaking of basketball I was in Rome covering that tournament and I asked Andy Murray because it was the same week that the Jason Collins story had hit um, on SI and I had asked Andy Murray you know what's the deal with the ATP locker room is the ATP locker room ready for an out player you know and and he gave like a really great response which is just that he was like pretty sure there's all I mean there's got to be already gay guys in the locker room we just don't know it and it's fine like it's not you know that big of a deal and Federer kind of said you know similar you know things about it but in Ben and I were talking a couple days ago about how we can't really think of you know within the last I don't know or at least currently that there are that many out women in the WTA locker room even though compared you, to what it used yeah, to be yeah compared to what it used to be and and given kind of the difference between how you know it was rampant you said it, not us. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah. It was just, I think it was just so much more obvious, you know? Right. Um, I mean, if I look at it objectively, it's like, you'd be shocked. Like, I think some people would be surprised. And there are a lot of, there, not a lot, there are some players that, that aren't out and that don't necessarily hide it, but they don't come out and say that they're gay either, you know? Right, right. Um, so... I do think that's a misnomer as well. And, and and even a friend of mine who I said, oh, yeah, so and so, and she's like, what, she's gay? And I'm like, yeah, you know, and they're like, oh, I never thought that ever. And I'm like, yeah, it's not like they're knocking on your door going, oh, they are so, that's so obvious, they're so right. gay. It's like, well, it's not that obvious all the time, actually. So I don't know, I think it's, it's probably almost the same, if not maybe a little less than what, what used to be, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But, um, you know, I, I do think that I actually do believe it's cyclical as well. I do think that you get, and like I said, I think there's players that are, are gay that aren't out, that don't talk about it, and they're not that obvious. Um, right. So I think that that's an interesting point of view as well. You know, so the guys, I mean, they're never going to come out, you know. Uh, right. I mean, unless, until somebody big time does it, they're never going to come out either, and, and I don't know. Because of, like, marketing or because of the, the just the sport yeah. or the locker room? or I think I think mostly because of the marketing, and I also think just from their own being, being you know, feeling like they're being, they would be ridiculed. I do think that's changing. I mean, I think Jason Collins coming out, I think it's going to change it eventually. Um, I think it's going to be a lot slower. And then, I, I mean, quite frankly, it's kind of, like, funny in some respects because it's like, who gives a shit? You know what I mean? Right. It's like... Why does somebody need to be out to make them a better tennis player or even a better person? It's like, look, there's, like I said, there's a lot of people I know that are gay that don't say they're gay and they're like totally comfortable with themselves and they're not actually trying to hide it. You right. Know? Um, so, Which is, I mean, arguably that's like, that's kind of the next step, right? I, I have a cousin who's, who's gay and he's never formally come out, but he's lived his life out effectively. I mean, he doesn't hide anything, you know, he brings over a boyfriend, he doesn't say one thing or the other it's just like oh, okay and you know kind of lives his life just like any straight person would which is that like you don't feel the need to actually have to declare your sexuality every 10 minutes yeah. of your life you know yeah and so many people you know that's that's so many people in this world they're like oh i, I just assume you knew i was gay i mean hello right 
I've never brought a boyfriend home or I never brought a girlfriend home. So I do think it's interesting sometimes. But, um, you know, listen, one day it might be great. And I think the only reason why I even say that is because it just would be great to have, you know, role models in the sport that say, hey, listen, you know, you can still look after me and it'll be okay. You'll be okay. And I think the most important for people that are really well known is to do it because they need to show people that it's, it's going to be okay, you know, that yeah. they're going to still be loved. And I, right. I remember that even with me. It was like the first response I got when I came out in Australia was just like people were totally fine with me the next day. I was like, oh, okay, people still like me, you know? Yeah. Right. So, I, I mean, the, the main reason for me to do it, to be honest with you, was so that when I stopped playing tennis where it didn't matter if I was gay or not, that I knew I'd get a job, I was going to get the next job, knowing that people knew exactly who I was and what they were getting and not try and hide it. That, that was because I am such an honest person. I didn't want to go into my next, line of work going oh my god i can't talk about anything i can't be honest i can't you know screw that there's so many people i know in television that aren't out and i think oh you poor thing you know right right yeah i think for some of it i don't know i don't remember the exact circumstances of how you came out but it seems like a lot of it is the media putting less focus on it i guess maybe than they used to in the days where navratilova came out and it was like tabloid fodder in london and stuff people chasing her around London and stuff like that, trying to find out information about her. And now the media seems to be, I don't know, necessarily a bit more respectful of it or letting people sort of have their own private lives and not, you know, digging through anyone's laundry or anything yeah, like I, that. I, I think I think now it's kind of like, okay, you know, uh, certainly in women's tennis, everyone's like, oh, yeah, big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, as well, in some respects. I think back then it was taboo, a lot more taboo than it is now in, in, in all respects for men and women. You know, hopefully, you know, in 20 years' time, we're going to look back and be like, this is such a joke we're even talking about this. Who cares? Right. You know, it's kind of like, oh, you know, um, you know, the black guy who's dating the white girl. It's like, um, yeah, and your point. Right. You yeah, know, I mean, so. it, 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 I mean, that is the argument that it's just a matter of time. And then we're just like in a certain time right now. And in five years and 10 years and 15 years, things are, you know, everybody sees the way the wave is, wh- which way the tide is going. So it's, you know, why, why sweat it, I suppose. But I mean, I think... Yeah. Everybody's you know, going to be gay in 50 years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, there is kind of like this discussion within and and obviously this kind of involves you now that you're kind of a commentator, but within kind of sports media in terms of how are sports journalists supposed to treat players, athletes who off the record, you know, are gay, you know, they travel with partners or like whatever. And, you know, if it was anyone else, like if it was if you flipped it and it was just like a straight person, you got it, you wouldn't feel any need to hide it or shield the player or protect the player in a way but you know there's kind of two camps as to whether or not that's kind of weirdly bigoted to do because you're treating them differently than you would a straight player or it's the respectful thing to do because it's not your news it's not your information like I don't know how do you kind of see that kind of argument yeah I think that's an interesting point I think that some of it is um I think some of that is right and I think some of it is um to the point of, yeah, but if a guy brings around his girlfriends, like, everyone's like, yeah, big deal. Like, they may show them on TV, but they're not like, mm. you know what I mean? Whereas, right. whereas I know players that have their partners in a player box, and they're not like, oh, and they're so-and-so's partner because they don't want to say it. Yeah, trust me, I've seen people that I know are <laughs> players' partners, and I don't, I, I don't even half the time know how to say it on TV. I'm right. like, oh, yeah, right. you know, so... <laughs> So it's not that easy, but also the respectful thing to do is how do you want me to talk about this person? 
and they say, oh, just say so-and-so. I go, okay, all right. You know, because I do like to make sure that my friends, especially, or people that I know aren't feeling like I'm outing them, you know, on national TV. Right. I think some of it is true in the fact, in the fact that we do protect them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a great, it's, it is a great question to ask why. You know, yeah, why it's do tough. Do it's a tough way. It's a tough one to kind of reconcile because it's not, you know, I see it both ways and I don't really, I mean, I know for myself, I'm kind of more inclined to go the protectionist route just simply because I'm like, it has nothing to do with their tennis, like, or, you know, what their it's job is. But is it protectionist or do you really in your mind think who gives, or like. Right. Or gives. is it a who gives a shit? Well, right. it's not, it's not yeah. newsworthy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas, you know, showing kids series on the TV 24-7, well, they just did a documentary together. You know what I mean? It's like, right. it's like they're not hiding it at all. So, you know, you're going to talk about it inevitably. I mean, right. I, I think that's friggin' annoying anyway. Like, I do TV. <laughs> when I'm doing TV, I'm like, okay, enough with the girlfriends and boyfriends. Like, seriously, it's annoying to me. I mean, show them when it's match point or show them when it's a big point. But every five seconds, it's like the directors that are sitting there, I'm like, guys, can you get your head like away from the girlfriend? You know, and I've been in, I'm in trucks when people are like, show the girlfriend again. She's hot. You know, it's like, okay. okay. All right. Yeah. You know, well, why, yeah. Why we Wimbledon final. I mean, the number of slow-mo shots of Kim Sears's hair bouncing up and down as she was fist pumping was a bit much. <laughs> yeah. It's like a shampoo commercial half the time. Yeah, exactly. Well, she's got good hair, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> But yes. Yeah. So I just basically wanted to ask about one person I know we talked about briefly before she said that she was coming back is Martina Hingis, who I know we discussed is is on the castles and you've been watching that and you've seen her play a bunch and been on the legends court, I think, with her recently. What do you what do you make of her coming back and sort of what her current status is now? Um, Okay. Uh, (laughs) Whatever you whatever you want to say, feel free. I mean, good, you know, in some respects, good for her. I mean, if she feels like, you know, that, that her life isn't fulfilling her in other ways and she wants to still play and she feels like that tennis was taken away from her too early and that she didn't get the shit on her terms, which I think a lot of players really struggle with. I know Jennifer Capriati struggled with that and has struggled with that, the fact that she didn't get this on her terms because of her injury. Right. Um, and I think that... I think Martina falls into that category that, you know, when she stopped playing, she stopped playing the first time because of her foot problems. And then when she came back, she, again, had issues and, and you know, with the with Gandalf, with the drug, you know, it's like she, again, had to be forced away from playing. So I think that she probably has struggled with letting it go. And I think that players need to be able to let it go in their own way and in their, in their terms. And I think that that's what she's decided that she wants to do. Yeah. And she can still yeah. bowl. Yeah, for sure. I mean, she's still got those hands. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on a doubles court, I think she's going to struggle in singles. Um, and I mean, struggle like she's never going to be even close to what she was before because there are so many players that play like her as far as the tenacity to not make a mistake and she, she doesn't have the power and her serve is, you know, below average. Uh, so I think that, that that's going to take an advantage of. But I do think her competitiveness, her ability to be able to read the court, um, her hands, her ability to play shots from anywhere in the court sometimes she's going to do well and she'll do well in doubles court and you know let's hope that she I, I heard she has intentions of playing singles again as well possibly so we'll see what happens Interesting. yeah how how hard is it for you to decide to walk away eventually like how hard was that I know it's sort of you sort of did it as a very gradual thing but how hard was it to finally sort of let's go as a competitive person that you are 
Oh, it was, it was incredibly difficult to let go, to be honest. I mean, I played playing again uh, last year. Um, mainly, to, the only reason I would have played was to make the Olympic team, and that was my mm-hmm. goal. Um, if I was going to play again, it was to, my, to make my fifth Olympics, to possibly have a chance to win a medal, which is the one thing other than winning the French that I really didn't do in my career. So I thought, you know, this is a chance for me to do that with Sam at Wimbledon. And I got the call from NBC whilst I was in Australia doing um, TV down uh, at the beginning in Sydney, actually, just after Brisbane. I'd just gotten in from Brisbane. And I got a call from Molly Solomon from NBC to do the Olympics. Um, would I do it? And it was kind of that moment in time where you're like, okay, this is, this is the, you know what, I'll get off the pot time. And I said, yes, I would do it. And the main reason was because I felt it was an opportunity that I couldn't let go of. Um, especially after I was done, I wanted to do TV. And I thought this was just the, probably the best opportunity I'm going to get in my lifetime to be able to go and commentate and work at an Olympic Games. So I said, yes. And that really sealed the deal for me to walk away. But it was very, very hard. It was very hard to do the Olympics at Wimbledon because that was, you know, my mm. goal. And, and I still felt like I could compete with these, you know, with most of the girls down on tour. Um, so it was really very, very hard. It's one of the hardest things. that any, I think it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done to essentially retire, like let it go and move into something else. Um, I was really lucky that I had something to move into right away. Um, but having said that, it doesn't make it easy. It's still a very hard process, and a lot of players are going to face it, and a lot of players struggle with it a lot. Yeah, it's the one thing all players have in common. Everyone has to stop playing at some point. Yeah, and some some don't mind. Some are like, "Thank God, I'm done." Like they, you know, they move on with their life so quickly and easily, and they they you know they they transition into something else really well, and they like it. But I would say the majority of players really struggle with it. Who who have you been like the most impressed with in terms of somebody who was able to make that transition seamlessly and kind of walk away from tennis and be like, no, I'm good. I'm gravy. <laughs> Probably Steffi, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. of the greats. I mean, I just, I still to this day think it's just phenomenal what she did. You know, I'm just like, oh, I'm done. I'm like, you know, I saw her the next morning. I'm like, what do you mean you're done? She's like, I'm done. I'm like. No, no, the U.S. Open's like three weeks away. She's no, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm retired. I'm like, what? You know, I mean, her. I mean, only she could just go, yeah, I'm done enough. I've done enough. Um, I don't need any farewell to her. I don't need any, you know, kissing the grass or waving to the crowd or anything like that. I'm just, I'm out of here. See ya. Uh, I mean, it's just, it just it's so indicative of her as a person as well, you know, that she never did it for the accolade. She did it only for herself and she set her own bar and she did it again when she retired. So probably Steffi and then, of course, you know, she magically and wonderfully went into being a mom and probably probably her the best i mean kim you would say kim but kim came back so kim came back kim came back and kim's still you know she's still watching she's still tweet live tweeting matches i mean she's still got her head in the game you know she loves Um, tennis she loves tennis she loves to compete that was what made her so good in the first place you know steffi uh steffi doesn't watch as much as kim does but you know she still takes a bit of an interest in it but not much well thank you thank you very much for joining us renee no problem we always we always have our guests pick like the outro song for the episode. So if you if you have like a favorite song or like something that's like the Renee Stubbs theme anthem. song that you want to give us, your anthem. Oh yeah, my let us god! Know, we'll, you we'll why didn't there. you tell me that at the start? So I had something <laughs> in my head, so I could look it up on my like my iTunes or something. Wow, man, uh, that's a tough one. Uh, I really, I mean, I can't get that stupid song. Um, what is it? Uh, I'm up all night. No, what is it? Dance all night. What is it? It's late, latest one. Oh. Uh, by Daft Punk. Oh, Get Lucky? Yes. That yes. is in my head right now. Solid. I think it's in everybody's head. It's a rad song. It's kind of annoying, but um, yeah, that's <laughs> in my head. But if well, I, I mean, 
I have to tell you one of the songs that I have heard in a long time. It was, it was a live performance by Doug Kroll. It's called uh, A Case of You. It's a, it's a little mellow, though. So if you if you don't want mellow, then then I would go with the Daft Punk one. We can we can do both. We'll mix them together. Make a that mashup. That'll make a mashup. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they'll go they're, wonderfully they're really well together. together. They don't really go together. They don't really go together. It depends on quite, kind of if you're in a depressed mood or not. Okay. We'll leave people the choice then. Thanks, thanks again, Renee. I appreciate it. Okay, guys. No problem. Thanks, Renee. See ya. Bye.